The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. And when he had beat him out, he beat him in again. He beat him three times over, his power to maintain. This rhyme is important to us today because it is one of the best known references to one of the most well-known mythical creatures. And that is the unicorn. Of course, it's just one of many, many references to unicorns throughout history, often in places you might not expect. But the question for us today is where did the unicorn come from? How did it become so well known? And did this incredible creature ever exist? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. fellow skeptics and thank you once again for joining me as always i would like to begin today's show by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people on whose lands i am podcasting today and i pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging shout out also to studio four at the state library of victoria where this episode is being recorded today for more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. Finally, today's episode is dedicated to my sister Cassie, who not only requested the topic, but is undoubtedly, in my completely unbiased, objective and absolutely neutral opinion, the best sister in the world and the unicorn's biggest fan. And now, sprinkle some glitter... Pull out your brightest rainbow and clap your hands if you believe. This Saturday, the 24th of June, is International Fairy Day. Now, the fact that such an awesome themed day even exists is epic in of itself as I think we could all use a little magic in current times. Now, belief in the supernatural goes back to the Stone Age at the very least, although the most famous stories of fairies and fairy-like creatures generally have much later origins. And they're most common in Europe, and pretty much all European mythologies will have some kind of fairy or fairy-like creature. The modern interpretation of a fairy, a tiny, usually feminine appearing creature with dainty wings, a sparkly dress and a magic wand is quite new. It appeared in the 20th century and in the past the term fairy was used to describe a wide variety of supernatural beings from destructive giants to helpful household spirits gentle protectors of trees and waterways, and even wicked tricksters who enjoyed toying with humans for their own amusement. The subject of today's podcast, The Unicorn, has undergone a similar sort of cultural shift. Early depictions of the unicorn describe it as being a wild, nearly untamable beast, 
which could never be taken alive by a hunter and was impossible to catch. Unless, of course, you had a devout virgin handy. But more on that in a moment. This is the kind of unicorn we see in ancient heraldry. Powerful, fierce, protective and strong. And, to be frank, more than capable of taking on a lion if the need arose. The modern unicorn, generally depicted as a pink or white horse, shy, gentle and reclusive with golden hooves and a horn that is often either white, gold or silver, well, that's not a unicorn that the ancients would recognise. However, in the modern stories, as in the ancient ones, the unicorn is always a magical creature, although the source of the magic and how the magic is used tends to vary from story to story. But where did the unicorn come from? And perhaps more excitingly, was it always a myth? The earliest depiction we have of a seemingly one-horned creature comes to us from the Indus Valley culture in the Bronze Age, around 2000 BCE. This was one of the original River Valley cultures, a contemporary of the famous ancient Egyptians, and life for the Indus Valley people centred around the Indus River, which is now in modern-day Pakistan, and the smaller seasonal rivers which flowed from it following monsoons. It was a widespread culture. It stretched across much of Pakistan, Afghanistan and India. And they existed from roughly 3300 to 1900 BCE. So quite a long-lived culture as well. Now, archaeologists have found numerous seals from this period which appear to depict an ox-like creature but with one horn instead of two and wearing a bridle. There is disagreement among experts as to what the seal means or what its significance was to the Indus Valley people. But we can assume the symbol was important as quite literally hundreds upon hundreds of these seals have been found right across the region. And if you want to see a picture of one, I will be putting one up on my Instagram. But what animal is it exactly? The closest living animal it resembles is a bull perhaps painted at an angle with one horn covering the other. But other depictions of bulls from this period, even in profile, tend to show them with two horns. Aside from living bulls, there were several species of extinct ox-like animals that lived in this area, such as the aurochs. Although, again, when they're depicted in artwork from this culture, they all have two horns, no matter which way or which angle they're painted from. So, if it isn't a type of cow... What else could it be? Another theory suggests that it's a rhinoceros. The Indian rhinoceros, which is also called the greater one-horned rhinoceros, has one large horn that can grow up to 63 centimetres in length. And in fact, it's one of the only two land animals to have a single horn, the other being the critically endangered Javan rhinoceros. Now, during the time of the Indus Valley people, both of these animals actually lived in that area and the people would have known about them, and there is some evidence that the rhino was even deatified in the Indus Valley, that is, worshipped and believed to be a god, although this is open to interpretation and not all scholars agree. The problem with this theory is that the creature on the seal seems to be depicted wearing a saddle or bridle, and the body shape doesn't resemble that of other contemporary artworks that depict the rhinoceros. We know that no culture has ever ever domesticated, let alone ridden the rhinoceros. 
although it is a common trope in fantasy and sci-fi. For instance, one great example is the Border Tribe in the first Black Panther movie, who send in three domesticated rhinos to aid them in their fight against T'Challa at the end of the movie. And while this is a cool image, rhinos would actually make really poor steeds. They have terrible eyesight, they're easily startled and liable to charge without warning, and the males in particular can be incredibly aggressive, also the females if they have calves. And what's more, even if we had somehow been able to domesticate rhinos, we wouldn't have found a bridle big enough for them and we're unlikely to be able to create one in the future either. But then if this one-horned creature is not a cow and unlikely to be a rhino, what on earth is it? There are two other theories that I think deserve attention. One. It's an extinct species of megafauna that we haven't found in the fossil record yet. Remember, fossils only form under certain conditions and there are many animals that have been forever lost to time because their fossils have never been found and never will be found simply because they didn't die in conditions that allowed them to be preserved. However, that being said, if this is true, we would expect to see a record of it in the writings of the Indus Valley people. This was a literate culture and we can read their writing. But there's no mention of a one-horned animal in any of the writings we do have from this time. Theory number two, it's a completely imaginary creature or deity. Modern humans have this very strange habit of assuming that ancient people had no imagination and only drew, painted or wrote about things that were immediately present in their world, which of course is, well, let's be frank, it's absurd. Humans have an enormous capacity for imagination and there's no reason to believe that modern humans are better at coming up with fantastical creatures than our ancient ancestors were. Imagination is what allowed us to evolve, for crying out loud. And we also know that All ancient cultures had rich histories of storytelling. Deities from other realms, fire-breathing serpents, humans transformed into animals, and so on. With this in mind, I think perhaps the creature conventionally called a unicorn on the Indus Valley Seal is much more likely to be either a religious symbol or perhaps a creature from Indus Valley mythology, although not everyone would agree with me here. The animal or symbol on those seals, whatever it may be, is the first depiction of a one-horned creature that cannot be immediately or easily identified. It's not a unicorn as Western mythology would understand it, but it gives us a jumping off point to examine how the modern unicorn came to be such a well-known and well-loved symbol. So well-known, in fact, that it graced not just the arms of powerful knights and a few warlords, but entire countries. I'm going to pause here for a quick break And then I'm going to return to add some more colour to the unicorn myth. Welcome back. If you've brought some glitter with you, it might be time to put it away because you're probably going to need a spear to deal with the unicorn of the ancient world. The first of the Western ancient civilizations to describe a unicorn were the Greeks. In about 400 BCE, Cetestius, apologies to any Greek scholars if I am pronouncing that name incorrectly, who was a historian from this period, wrote a work called Intercea, which he gives us the first description of what would one day become the unicorn. Now, Cetastius's work was about India. Although he had never in his life been there, 
and the book was written while he was living in Persia, which is around modern-day Iraq. It was based entirely on the recollections and stories from travellers on the Silk Road, and this was a very common way to write books about other cultures in ancient Greece and then later in ancient Rome, as very few Greeks or Romans travelled far unless they were serving in the army. What this means is that it's important to take these sources with a generous helping of salt, as they are not only recording second-hand information with no way to check their sources, it's also been well established by scholars that these early quote-unquote historians often added everything from small embellishments to flat-out lies to their works to make them seem more interesting. Cetastius is particularly infamous for doing this and it remains a matter of debate whether he was really told about a unicorn in India by a trader or whether he made it up himself. Unfortunately, his work as a whole hasn't survived the intervening millennia, but we do still have fragments and summaries of it and the unicorn is described in one of these fragments thus, and I quote, There are in India certain wild asses which are as large as horses and even larger. Their bodies are white, their heads dark red, and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn in the middle of the forehead that is one cubit, that is about a foot and a half, in length. The base of this horn is pure white. The upper part is sharp and of a vivid crimson, and the middle portion is black. Those who drink from these horns, made into drinking vessels, are not subject, they say, either to convulsions or to the falling sickness. Indeed, they are immune even to poisons if, either before or after swallowing such, they drink wine, water, or anything else from these beakers. This animal is exceedingly swift and powerful, so that no creature, neither horse nor any other, can overtake it. There is no way to capture them in the hunt than this, when they conduct their young to pasture. If they are surrounded by many horsemen, they refuse to flee, thus forsaking their offspring. They fight with thrusts of horn. They kick, bite, and strike with wounding force both the horses and hunters. But they perish under the blows of arrows and javelins, for they cannot be taken alive. The flesh of this animal is so bitter that it is not edible. It is hunted for its horn and its ankle bone. Now, as much fun as this creature sounds, had such a brightly coloured animal existed, we would have certainly found evidence of it in the written records of India at this time. However, these colours may not be entirely made up. In what is now modern day India and parts of Pakistan, Indian rhino horns were highly prized as drinking vessels and they were often painted in, you guessed it, Three bands of colour, white at the base, black in the centre, and crimson at the tip. It's even possible that Cetastius himself actually saw one of these drinking vessels. Persia was not very far from India at the time. Or he had one described to him by traders he spoke to for his book, and then either invented the animal or was told by traders about this animal they believed the horn came from. Unfortunately, we'll never really know. Another famous ancient Greek writer to describe the unicorn this way is Aristotle. He copied almost word for word Cetastius' description from Indusia, although he made one important difference. While Cetastius made it very clear that the unicorn was from India and only found there, 
Aristotle claimed that the beast could be found in all the wild places of the world. Now, as far as Aristotle was concerned, this meant anywhere that educated Greek men like him didn't exist. So, actually, most of the world, let's be frank. In later centuries, the Romans would also expand on the ideas of Cetastius and Aristotle and other writers regarding the unicorn. Pliny the Elder, who almost certainly read Aristotle and may have also had access to Cetastius's works, claimed that the unicorn had the head of a stag, the body of a horse, the tail of a boar, and the feet of an elephant. As in the earlier writings, Pliny claimed that the unicorn was only found in particularly wild places, but most especially in the forests of Germania, which is modern-day Germany and parts of Austria, and especially in those places which remained unconquered by the Romans. Julius Caesar, arguably the most famous Roman emperor, was another who wrote about the unicorn, although he specifically described it as a one-horned stag, but agreed with Pliny the Elder that it only lived in the forests of Germania. Now, these Greek and Roman accounts of unicorns do share many of the characteristics that would shape the modern unicorn myth. They only had one horn, they were elusive, hard to catch, and they were wild, ferocious creatures who would not be taken alive by hunters. It's also very significant in these accounts that the unicorns inhabit places that were perceived as wild, outside the safe boundaries of empire, a kind of early here-there-be-monsters idea. It's important to note that the Greeks and Romans, along with many contemporary civilizations, most of which had some kind of unicorn myth, believed these creatures were real animals and not mythological beings. That's why we don't generally find them in the mythologies of this period, but rather in the bestiaries and other works of natural histories or non-fiction accounts from these time periods. I use the word non-fiction loosely, as of course there weren't the same standards in ancient Greece and Rome for non-fiction work as it is today. But as these empires collapsed and new ones emerged from their ashes, the unicorn persevered. There is no common consensus among folklorists and historians who specialise in these time periods as to why the unicorn endured across literal millennia and in so many places too. But with each new iteration, it changed ever so slightly. By the time the Middle Ages rolled around, the modern unicorn many of us know today had been almost fully formed. In Europe, during the medieval period, unicorns were universally portrayed as white, horse-like creatures with a single spiralling horn. They were believed to be magical, not only extremely swift and elusive, impossible for a hunter to catch, but also possessing supernatural powers. The horn, in particular, was believed to be the most magical part of the unicorn and the source of its almost divine abilities. Like Cestius, the medieval Europeans believed that a unicorn's horn could heal the sick, act as an antidote to all poisons, and might even have the ability to bestow immortality. However, this wasn't the only magic attributed to the unicorn. When we get back from this break, I'm going to tell you all about it. And I am back. I hope you're still in the mood for some magic, because there's some serious fairy dust, or perhaps I should say unicorn dust, coming your way. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Indian rhinoceros, which is quite possibly the first creature that would later be described as a unicorn, was very, very important to the people of the Indus Valley and then much later as well into more modern Indian culture. And its horn was used as a drinking vessel in ancient times. This is absolutely indisputable. We've found these types of cups in archaeological sites in India and Pakistan. And the ancient Greek historian, quote-unquote, Cetastius wrote that these horns had magical properties. It is worth noting here that some cultures still attribute magical properties to rhino horn, and the biggest threat to all species of rhinoceros across the world is poaching, as the horn is sought for use in traditional medicine or sold as a magic powder. For those wondering, rhino horn is made of keratin, the same substance as your hair or fingernails, and has no known magical properties. Cetastius seems to have been the first Westerner to claim that unicorn horns, or creatures that would later be believed to be unicorns, were especially magical. And it's one that has endured to this day. But in the Middle Ages, it was especially prevalent. The unicorn's horn was believed to be a kind of super-powered magic wand. It was capable of just about anything. Now, my personal favourite story is that the horn was not only powerfully magical, but also incredibly strong. It was claimed during the Middle Ages that a unicorn, when being pursued by hunters, would leap from cliffs and turn over in the air as they fell, ensuring that they landed on their horn and would again get up and trot away unscathed. For me, this conjures up a picture in my mind of an upside-down unicorn with its horn stuck deep into the earth, waving its legs in the air like a beetle flipped on its back. But I digress. <laughs> also remember, while it's easy to dismiss these stories as silly, the people of the time believed they were real creatures. So many strange and wonderful animals were being quote-unquote discovered and then often quickly hunted to extinction in Europe that it was perfectly reasonable for people to believe that something written about by the Greeks and Romans might just exist, even if they hadn't found it yet. Cetastias was also one of the first to mention that the unicorn was hard to catch. But by the time the Middle Ages rolled around, the people had found an absolutely foolproof solution to taming the unicorn. Now, earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that the people of the Middle Ages believed the only way to catch a unicorn was with a virgin woman, preferably one who was perfectly obedient and extremely devout, and it didn't hurt if she was beautiful as well. This story is a late addition to the unicorn myth and comes to us from another mythology which began to spread across Europe and eventually the world, and that is, of course, Christianity. Stories of unicorns and unicorn-like creatures predate the arrival of Christianity in Europe. In some cases, unicorn stories were so entrenched in the local cultures that rather than trying to suppress them, early Christian preachers simply incorporated the unicorn into their own stories to make it more palatable for the people they were converting. The magic was no longer just confined to the horn, but rather was an intrinsic part of the animal. The image of the fierce, wild unicorn morphed into a strong, noble creature with godlike healing powers. The horn became a symbol of divinity because it spiralled towards heaven, 
and unicorns became symbols of feminine purity and chastity. It was at the height of the Middle Ages that the idea that a unicorn could only be captured by a virgin maiden became an integral part of this myth. Because the unicorn itself was so pure, the idea went, it was drawn to the purity of a virgin maiden. And because of a desire to be close to someone as pure as itself, it would come and lie down in her lap, instantly tame. Folklorists believe this is an allegory, intentional or not, for the medieval belief that men were naturally brutish with an animal nature that could only be tamed by the touch of a woman. This idea persisted well into the Victorian era and, unfortunately, can still be seen in some of the ways we discuss heterosexual relationships today. For some bizarre reason, the entirely mythical construct of a woman's value being linked to her virginity still endures among many people and societies today, and this, of course, being despite the fact that virginity itself is a social rather than biological construct. The association of unicorns with Christianity and purity ceased after the Council of Trent in 1563. By the 1500s, people from all across Europe were realising that many of the fabulous mystical creatures such as unicorns, dragons and fairies that people had believed in so long were just that, fabulous and mystical. While Christianity still held sway at this time, science was beginning to emerge as a challenge to the religious edict to take it on faith. And the dominance of the Catholic Church as the sole religious authority was also being challenged in Western Europe at this time. Now, this all came to a head when Martin Luther published his 95 Theses in what is modern-day Germany in 1517, soon after the Reformation began in earnest. And the Council of Trent was called by the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in an attempt to formally establish the doctrine of the true church, as they saw it, and remove frivolous elements, such as unicorns, that might drive people into these new heretical faiths that were springing up across the continent. So while the unicorn lost its religious significance, its cultural clout only continued to grow, especially around the magic of its horn. The idea that unicorn magic was most abundant in the horn began to grow again following the Council of Trent, and it became, once again, a super-powered magic wand. Interestingly, unicorn horns, or objects that people claimed were unicorn horns, I should say, had been traded in Europe since Roman times, and it's generally believed by historians that these were the tusks of narwhals, a narwhal being a type of whale that lives in the Arctic. Remember that the Romans traded with people all over the world, so this isn't as far-fetched as it sounds. Now, these long horns are spiral-shaped, they're technically a tooth, and they match exactly with the descriptions of unicorn horns that began in Roman times and have continued into the modern day. If you haven't seen a picture of a narwhal, I recommend jumping onto Google Images and typing in narwhal. They are amazing creatures, and I will, of course, be popping a picture up on my Instagram too for those who want to have a look. Now, because unicorn horns, with all their supposed magical properties, were so desirable in Europe, particularly by European royalty and nobility in the Middle Ages, the Arctic traders and indigenous people 
were able to sell them for extremely high prices to explorers. Remember, in the medieval period, we started to see the age of exploration, colonization, and conquest begin. And these explorers could then sell them at an enormous profit back home, just eye-watering sums of money. Interestingly, though, particularly for explorers who made it to the Arctic, many of them had been shown narwhals or seen them on their travels And some of them, rather than trying to sell these tusks as the horns of unicorns, instead presented them to royalty as the horns of what they called the unicorn of the sea. And this is a nickname the narwhal still has today. That said, claiming it was a unicorn horn meant they could demand a higher price for it. And despite the generally accepted idea by this point, we're talking 1500s onwards, that unicorns were mythical beings, it didn't seem impossible to the Europeans that perhaps these creatures still existed somewhere at the edge of their maps. Proof, quote-unquote, of unicorns' existence in places that were still relatively unknown to Western Europeans in the form of narwhal teeth or sometimes the tusks of walruses or elephants, which were sold as unicorn horn also helped spur on this age of exploration among the rising colonial powers in Europe. Now, of course, they all set off to find exotic creatures, plants and places from which they could profit. Profits then coming at the expense of the indigenous people and they caused extensive damage to local flora and fauna up to and including the complete destruction of habitats we will never see again. In some cases, all for unicorn horn which didn't exist. Now, I'm going to take another quick break, and when I return, I'll be back with more unicorn myths. But be warned, it's going to get a little dark in here. You might want to bring a flashlight. After all, as with many mythical creatures, unicorns aren't all sunshine and rainbows. And we are back and back to unicorn horns, or at the very least, what people in the Middle Ages believed were unicorn horns. Supposedly, a unicorn's horn was made of a mythical substance called alicorn. And it was this alicorn that gave the unicorn its magical powers. Now, alicorn, it was believed, could only be found in the horns of unicorns, although this didn't stop alchemists from trying hard to create it, unsurprisingly, without success. Alicorn supposedly had more magical properties than I have time to name, but there are two which are worth discussing. Like the original myths regarding the horns of Indian rhinoceroses, one of the most prominent abilities attached to alicorn was that it could neutralise poison. For this reason, it became a popular material from which kings, bishops, dukes, princes and other nobles demanded their cups, plates, knives, forks and other dining implements be made. While some simply believed that having these objects would protect them from any poison that an angry rival might slip into their next meal, Others, well, they took it a bit too far. We have at least one account of a French lord who died after ordering his servants to fill his alicorn cup with poison, which he then drank in front of his horrified guests to prove its magical properties. His resultant death from poisoning, death by stupidity, I think we could call it, was put down to the cup being a fake, which it was actually after a fashion rather than admit that the king, or the lord actually, it wasn't the king, had drunk poison of his own free will. 
The other use for this mythical substance that I want to discuss relates to the idea that became prominent in the High Middle Ages that unicorns were especially drawn to virgin maidens. Even after the Council of Trent banned the use of unicorns in a religious context, they remained heavily associated with virginity and it was believed that alicorn could be used to detect if a woman was a virgin or not. Now, this may seem like a vaguely comical idea to us today, but if a medieval woman, especially a noble woman, was believed not to be a virgin at the time of her marriage, there were serious consequences up to and including execution. I'm not going to go into the details of some of the quote-unquote tests which were conducted on women using powdered or whole horns to prove their virginity. Suffice to say that they were absolutely a type of violent rape, usually in front of witnesses, and generally caused pain and humiliation for the women involved. It was only as science advanced and the idea of unicorns existing anywhere in the world, even at the edge of a map, began to disappear from the mainstream, that the idea that anyone could determine a woman's virginity using a mythical substance died out. I also want to state again, as I did earlier in the podcast, that virginity is a social construct that has no biological reality. The hymen exists, sure, but it's not a little door waiting for a penis to come smashing through, and it has absolutely no connection to a woman's intrinsic worth as a person. So what were these alicorn cups and other implements really made of? We know alicorn wasn't a real substance because, of course, unicorns are mythical creatures. As I mentioned earlier, the horns commonly sold as unicorn horns were usually the teeth of narwhals, although sometimes elephant or walrus tusks were substituted instead. However, alicorn could also be sold as a powder, and in this form, it could quite literally be anything an unscrupulous seller out to make a quick buck could grind up from the horns of other animals to sand. As for the cups, they were often made of ivory, as were the table sets. Interestingly, as alicorn began to decline in popularity, as more and more people recognised that unicorns were completely fictional and they'd been duped, demand for ivory began to increase. This is where we see those beautiful, albeit slightly disturbing, ivory-handled cutlery sets. And by the 19th century, ivory was big business. Killing elephants in Africa and Asia for the ivory in their tusks was not yet illegal. It would take many, many years for that to be outlawed. And poaching continues to be a problem today in those countries as well. As recently as 2017, the New York government publicly used a rock crusher to destroy $8 million worth of illegally poached ivory that a group had attempted to smuggle into and through the United States. But as the world progressed through the 17th and 18th centuries, heading towards the 19th century, and the discipline of science started to evolve, along with the dwindling authority of the church, there was less patience for myth in daily life. Slowly, the unexplainable became explainable, and no amount of demands by the once mighty church authorities that humans were meant to take it on faith could stop the advances in technology and knowledge that were sweeping the world. Of course, many of these advances were not new, but it was old knowledge being rediscovered and churches were losing their position as the gatekeepers to scholarship. The heretics of the past were becoming the scientists of the future and in the face of this, 
mystical creatures like unicorns started to be seen as silly and frivolous. And it's around this era, as we reach the Victorian age of the 1800s, that we see the unicorn make yet another transition into that of children's character. Sit tight, there's more coming after the break. Hey listeners, welcome once again. I work with children and I cannot tell you how many stories I have read that have featured unicorns. Thelma the Unicorn, Sugarlump and the Unicorn, The Littlest Unicorn, Unicorns Are Real, My Little Pony, the list goes on. If you have children in your life, you've undoubtedly also come across a unicorn book in your time. And this all started with the Victorians. By the time 1800 rolled around, the idea that unicorns were real had well and truly been consigned to the dustbin of history, and science was leading the way. The mythical creatures of yesterday were fit only for children's play, and it wouldn't be until the high fantasy novels of the 20th century that unicorns once again entered adult literature. It was also in the Victorian era that the unicorns started to be described as feminine. Early unicorns were exclusively male, and their strong, wild nature was seen as proof of their masculinity. The Victorians shaped unicorns to be gentle, shy, and tender, much more suited to their ideas of the feminine. Stories about unicorns began to use female pronouns, and even today, most unicorns in children's books are coded as feminine. Pink and purple became popular unicorn colours in this period, and the association with glitter and rainbows also started to develop. Given the rainbow is such an integral part of the unicorn myth, it was actually a surprise for me to learn that it's only about 200 years old. It's not part of the original myths at all. However, it does fit in with the way Western society was moving at the time. The rainbow became less mysterious as we understood more about the natural world, and it began to lose its religious mysticism as we learned more about how it formed. In many ways, the rainbow followed a similar trajectory to the unicorn in that it became a common feature in children's books and stories around this time. Because even if an adult knows how the rainbow is formed to a child, it is still beautiful and magical. And I think us adults could use some beauty and magic too. It was also around the Victorian era that the idea of the rainbow bridge that deceased pets would cross to reach pet heaven, for lack of a better term, started to become prevalent. And this was particularly in homes that could afford pets. Animals were moving from being strictly working creatures and beasts of burden to becoming beloved companions. Dogs became very, very popular in this era, um, following Queen Victoria, who had quite a few beloved dogs. Parents who were searching for a way to gently explain to their child why their pet wasn't coming back used the symbol of the rainbow to help comfort the child and it was something familiar that they could always see and remember their old friend. The unicorn's association with the rainbow continues to the present day, as does the idea that unicorns are usually female. This latter idea is being challenged, especially by the community who have adopted the unicorn as an important symbol of their own. That is the LGBTQI plus community. Given rainbows are such an important LGBTQI plus symbol, it isn't surprising that the unicorn has made its way into the movement for gay, trans and gender diverse rights. 
The unicorn's transition over the centuries from an exclusively male character to a female one and now moving into more gender-neutral territory is a powerful one within that community. And the ability of the unicorn to change, adapt and continue to exist is equally important. In today's climate, where even supposedly free countries are passing laws which restrict the rights of LGBTQI plus people, especially the trans community, to even exist, the endurance of the unicorn is an allegory for hope and survival. It has its lighter side too, of course. Being a magical horse covered in glitter and sparkles, it is the ultimate party animal. And it's made a scene at children's birthdays, drag performances, party games, and even as the inspiration behind some alcoholic beverages. And really, what's not to love? The unicorn is one of those rare things in this world that everyone can enjoy. From its early origins as a wild beast to its modern day affinity with rainbows and glitter, it has endured in a way few other cultural icons have. Across time, space and place, it remains as recognisable and well-loved as ever. Not bad for a creature that has only ever existed in our imagination. And that's all I have for you today, folks. You can find me online by going to www.skepticalhistory.com. That is skeptical with a K where you can find all my resources, information and blog posts and also past episodes of The Skeptical Historian. You can also contact me there or get in touch with me on Instagram or LinkedIn. I am Juliana Byers on both platforms. Next time on The Skeptical Historian, I'm going to be talking about something a whole lot more down to earth. Recently, Australia has been rocked by a war crimes investigation and allegations that our soldiers committed atrocities against civilians and detainees during the war in Afghanistan. Now, this has seen an upsurge in interest in the story of another Australian war criminal, Harry the Breaker Morant, who was executed for the murder of POWs and civilians in South Africa in 1902. But questions linger in the Australian psyche about Breaker's crimes. Was he really a cold-blooded killer or merely a scapegoat for the British Empire's territorial ambitions in South Africa? Listen in next time to find out. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud used under the Adobe Software License Agreement and Pixabay used under Creative Commons 4.0 International License. Links to all Pixabay sound effects can be found on my website. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics. <laughs>